John chapter 11, starting at verse 45, and continuing to chapter 12, verse 19. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is God's word. 1881, a Victorian artist called Frank Dixie painted a picture. Do you know, Ruth, do you know? You're the arty, but okay. So I'm talking about picture, which is unusual for me. I'm not particularly cultured. But Frank Dixie painted a picture called The Symbol. And it's a, it's a, great, it's a great picture. Uh, really clever, actually. It's of a, it's a, it's a nobleman uh, and, and uh, his lady and some of her friends in the background. Uh, they're all finely dressed, walking through an arch. I don't, I don't know where it's meant to be set, but it's sunny, it's beautiful. And then in the corner of the picture, on the roadside, is a, is a beggar. And he's holding a, a crucifix in his hand. Crucifix on which Jesus died. Just down there in the corner of the picture. And the picture's really clever because the artist has done everything to draw your gaze away from the crucifix in the corner. So the nobleman is kind of fiddling with the, the necklace, uh, the, uh, the thing on his necklace, like that. So you look there. The, the lady is kind of plucking an orange off the tree like that. The whole lines of the, I don't know much about this kind of thing, but the whole lines of the painting, the perspective, sort of channel your, your eyes back through the arch that they're walking through. Everything is designed to take your gaze off the cross. The only person who is even looking at the cross, apart from the beggar, is the, is the nobleman. <clears throat> and even as he's doing that, he's just looking down his nose at the cross. The picture's called The Symbol, but the subtitle of it is what is really interesting. The subtitle of the picture is, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? That is the challenge of the picture, and that is the challenge of this passage. The cross on which Jesus died. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Or is it something to be treasured above everything? Let me pray as we delve into this passage. Heavenly Father, We would hate to be those who look at the cross and pass it by as if it is nothing. Father, we pray that as we, as we look at this passage, as we, as we get into it, as we soak ourselves in it, please will you make us men and women who treasure your cross. Now you remember last week we saw Jesus confidently, amazingly proclaim, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who can guarantee you spiritual life now and on into eternity at the last day to be raised up and enjoy eternal resurrection life. A massive claim and Jesus put his money where his mouth is by calling out to the man Lazarus who'd been dead in a tomb four days. Lazarus, come out. And we saw a dead man 
emerge walking, brought to life. An amazing event, and as you'd expect, such a, a raising of a dead man sent, sent tremor, tremors out, ripples out through the land around about. And the raising of Lazarus also, in a sense, sends, sends tremors through the rest of this passage. So the, the raising of Lazarus sets the agenda or drives the narrative for what is coming in the rest of chapter 11 and in chapter 12. So uh, did you notice in chapter 11 where we started reading verse 45, people who saw what Jesus did, i.e. that is raise Lazarus, go to the Pharisees. And then Lazarus is mentioned in chapter 12 verse 1, chapter 12 verse 2, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 17. So the raising of Lazarus frames this passage and and drives it forward from a story point of view. And we've got to ask, what happens when the Lord of life walks through the pages of human history and ends death? What sort of tremors are sent through a country when something as marvellous as that happens? Well, tragically, the answer is something unfathomably evil. So our first point this morning is worldly jealousy sends the Lord of life to his death. The points are not on your handout, so I apologise, but they're on the screen behind me. Worldly jealousy sends the Lord of life to his death. Have a look. Um, Chapter 11, uh, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So now, the fact, if you've been following John's gospel, you know the Pharisees have resented Jesus the whole way through John's gospel. And this, of course, is more bad news for them. Uh, after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' polling numbers have gone through the roof. He's the popular guy in town. And so verse 47, together with the, with the chief priests, they assemble, the, the Pharisees assemble the, the Sanhedrin, verse 47. Now, the Sanhedrin was made up of uh, religious leaders, elders, and landed aristocrats. Historians think it was the, the chief uh, judicial body in the land. And on their agenda that day is their failure to quash Jesus' popularity. So have a look. Verse 47b. End of verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, why is that a problem? Well, as it carries on, then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So the Sanhedrin was the highest uh, judicial body in the land, but ultimately it was under Roman jurisdiction. The nation was uh, occupied by the Romans at the time, and the Romans didn't like trouble. So if there's this man, Jesus, wandering around, attracting a following to himself, if through Roman eyes, that looks like potential for trouble. That could be the seedbed of a rebellion against the, the Roman government. And if Jesus gets too popular, 
The Sanhedrin know that the Romans could respond with draconian measures. They could say, no, you're not going to worship at the temple. We're going to crack down even more on what sort of little autonomy you have. And that the concern of the Sanhedrin in verse 47, 48, it could be legitimate, it could be wise, it could be concern for their fellow people and for the nation, but it probably isn't. Because look what, look how Caiaphas puts it when he steps in authoritatively in verse 49. Caiaphas, the high priest, verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It could, it could be concern, but look how he puts it. Not, it would be better for the nation if one man dies. He doesn't say it would be better for the common good if one man dies. He says, he says to these, uh, to the, to the ruling elite, it would be better for you if one man dies. It would be better for you if we can get rid of this, this, uh, Jesus troublemaker, keep the Romans happy, and the status quo of us in charge, benevolently ruling the people, will be maintained. His, his agenda, Caiaphas's agenda, is, is maintaining his, his and the rest of the Sanhedrin's position as the ruling elite. And so, skipping on to verse 53. From that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Worldly jealousy sends the Lord of life to his death. It's not just Jesus they're trying to kill either. Did you notice where we end up in chapter 12, verse 10? Have a look down, chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Worldly jealousy sends the Lord of life to his death. You'd think someone on Caiaphas's team would have spotted the huge irony here, though, wouldn't you? Uh, Mr. Caiaphas, sir, Jesus is a problem because he raised someone from the dead. And your plan is to kill him and the person he raised from the dead. Uh, He's popular because he can raise people from the dead and you think you're going to get rid of him by killing him. Uh, Mr. Caiaphas, I don't want to question your wisdom, but this might not actually turn out the way you're hoping. And of course, we know it won't. Worldly jealousy sends the Lord of life to his death. And then secondly, we can have the next point up. This death is the only means by which we gain life. Now, the climax to, I'm sure many of you have read it, the climax to the book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, 
by C.S. Lewis. The, the wicked white witch has slain the great lion Aslan. Uh, I'm sure many of us will know uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, particularly the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, is, a, is an allegory of the Christian faith. And Aslan, of course, represents Jesus. Now, the last time the children saw Aslan, he's been, he's, his mane has been shaved and he's been slaughtered by the white witch on the stone table. And then we read this. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken. And then as the glorious resurrected Aslan comes and meets the children, the children question, what does this all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So verse 50 in our passage here, Caiaphas confidently speaks to his peers. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. But the other huge irony here is that Caiaphas is not aware that he isn't the only player. Caiaphas isn't aware that there is a, there is a deeper magic that he knows nothing of at work in the events that are unfolding here. Look how verse 51 puts it. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not for that nation only, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. See, here is the crucial truth of this passage. Here is the crucial truth of Christianity, if you like. The very death that Caiaphas is hastening is the very death that God has ordained from before the beginning of time will bring life to all his children. See, Caiaphas says it is better that one man perishes than that the whole nation does. And in a way that he knows nothing of, of course, he's entirely right. He's just thinking at the political level. But God has ordained it that he speaks better than he knows and is actually speaking at a spiritual level. You see, Jesus is going to his death in the same way that a, that a seed falls to the ground. A seed falls to the ground, dead as it were. And only by doing so does life emerge. Jesus is the, Jesus' death is the only means by which we gain life. So do, you know, do you notice what time of year it is in this passage? Do you notice what event is coming up? Look at verse 55. When it was almost time 
for the Jewish Passover. You see, it's Passover time. Do you remember, Passover was that event that happened thousands of years ago when God rescued his people from Egypt. God had continually said through Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh had said, no, I will not. And God says, I'm going to send plagues on your country until you do let my people go. And the final plague, what was it? The final plague was the death of every firstborn son throughout the land. And God said to his people, the only way to avoid death, the only way for life to remain is if you kill a sacrificial lamb and paint the blood on the doorposts of your house. And if you do that, then the angel of death will pass over and there will be life in your household the next morning. At the Passover, death of the lamb led to life. And that is what the Jewish people celebrated year after year after year after year after year. And now it is Passover time again. And Caiaphas, completely unwittingly, knowing nothing of what he's talking about, with his eyes himself only leveled on the, on the here and now and political expediency, without realizing it, Caiaphas is ensuring that this year the sacrificial lamb is going to be like no other before and no other since. This year, the very death that Caiaphas is hastening is the death of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. This Passover, Jesus will be the Passover lamb. This Passover, Jesus will go to his death to take away the sins of the world. He will die in the place of sinners like you and me. This Passover, Jesus will absorb God's wrath in our place so we don't have to. This Passover, Jesus will die to bring together all the children of God. See, Caiaphas is sending the Lord of life to his death. But there is a deeper magic, as it were, at work here. This death is the only means by which we can gain life. See, that is the centerpiece of Christianity. That is what is happening on the cross. Jesus is dying so that you and I can have life. And the question that this passage poses is, do you treasure that above everything? Or is it nothing to you or you who pass by? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at, asking that question. Is it, is it something, is Jesus' death something you treasure or is it something you despise? We'll look, we'll look quickly at three responses that the first part of chapter 12 presents to us. So firstly, Mary treasures this death. This is the death by, the only means by which we can obtain life and Mary treasures this death. So beginning of chapter 12, Verse 1, here we are six days before Passover and we're back in Bethany where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead with Mary, with Martha and with the newly raised Lazarus. And verse 2, a dinner has been given in Jesus' honour. Martha is serving as usual, it's what she does and then suddenly a beautiful aroma, a 
beautiful aroma wafts through the whole house. Mary has just poured out a pint of perfume over Jesus' feet. Now, I don't know if you've ever ever, ever bought perfume. Uh, this is one of my wife's. Perfume is eye-wateringly expensive, isn't it? It is so... I don't know how they get away with it. I did the maths, and I worked out for about... Like, every, every milliliter of this one costs you about £1.35. That's quite a lot, isn't it? But um, look how much... Look at, Did you notice... Um, where is it? Verse 5 of chapter 12... We'll get on to Judas in a minute, but Judas points out this perfume uh, that, that Mary pours out is worth, is worth a year's wages. Let's just say like, they reckon the average wage in London is about 30 grand. So if you do the maths there, every milliliter of that perfume is worth 60 quid. And there's Mary lavishly pouring it over Jesus, particularly pouring it over his feet. An extravagant, an extravagant gesture of love and devotion to the man who has raised her brother back to life. But here's the thing, and and we don't quite know uh, whether Mary fully understood the significance of what she was doing, uh, anointing Jesus' feet with this perfume. But but look how Jesus interprets Mary's action. Look down verse 7. Verse 7, see how Jesus interprets this. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Slightly confusing. I I think what's going on there is Jesus is saying, look, by this point, my my death is is so certain, it's so inevitable, that he can actually kind of symbolically speak as if even this very day here is the day of his burial. And he's saying... Mary has saved this lavish gift for the day of my burial. What she's doing is the equivalent of sort of anointing, anointing his body for burial. Whether she fully realizes it or not, Mary is is treasuring Jesus' death. She's showing an extravagant devotion and appreciation of Jesus' death. She just, she blows... 30 grams worth of perfume. And Jesus interprets it as a mark of how much she treasures his death. And Jesus says that is an entirely appropriate thing to do. I suppose the question is, do we agree with Jesus? Is his death in your place for sin Worthy of your extravagant devotion? Do you treasure Jesus' death like Mary does? Because someone who has looked at Jesus' death, someone who has seen his death as the only means by which we gain life, will treasure Jesus' death. Someone who has looked at Jesus' death and seen it as the means by which we gain life might show that they treasure it by... By valuing talking about it to friends or colleagues rather than playing it safe in relationships. Someone who has seen Jesus' death for what it is might, might treasure it and express how much they treasure it by uh, valuing funding gospel work to proclaim that death. 
rather than climbing the property ladder. When you've seen Jesus' death for what it is, you will treasure it. That is what Mary does. On the other hand, of course, Mary treasures Jesus' death. Judas despises Jesus' death. See, as we noticed, verse 5, the only reason we know how much this perfume costs uh, is because uh, Judas protests, verse 5, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And then verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, his scheming brain is going, oh, look, if we can, if we can uh, sell this perfume... And the proceeds of it can kind of go into our general money pot, our benevolent fund. Then there'll be a lot there for me to pilfer away. And so like the chief priests and the Pharisees, his eyes are just set on earthly things. For the chief priests and the Pharisees, it was maintaining their privileged position. For him, it is swelling his bank balance. It's tragic. He has been with Jesus for three years and yet no light has penetrated his heart. He's been with Jesus for three years and yet he has no awareness that he needs a saviour to die for him, to bring him life. He sees nothing noble. He sees nothing appropriate in Mary's extravagant gesture. To treasure Jesus' death is madness to Judas. It is not to be celebrated, it is not to be treasured. And of course, in a few short days, this same Judas is going to betray Jesus to the religious authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus sees nothing, Judas sees nothing in Jesus' death other than a grubby means for a quick profit. This death is the only means by which we gain life, and yet Judas despises it. I take it none of us here are like Judas. We don't want to steal from the poor. We would never betray Jesus for a quick buck. I take it on the, on the surface, none of us are like Judas. But the sobering thing is this. Really, when you strip it down, all Jesus is is the kind of person who looks at Jesus' death And then walks on as if it is nothing. Jesus is the type of person who has heard about Jesus' death from Jesus himself. Jesus, Judas is the type of person who perhaps would have sat in a church like this week after week and heard of Jesus' death and yet grasped nothing of the glory of it. Judas, when all is said and done, is just the type of person who sees no need for Jesus' death. Judas is the type of person who knows nothing of the life that this death brings. When you put it like that, when you frame Judas as that type of person, it's a lot easier to see how there could even be people here today who act like Judas in that they think nothing of Jesus' death. I know that's certainly what I was like before I became a Christian. I remember um, 
it was it was freshers' week uh, at university. I was in charge of. I was, it was my second year. I was in charge of the freshers' week for my college, uh, and a guy from a local church came in and he gave a talk, a bit like this one, saying. Jesus' death on the cross in your place is the centerpiece of Christianity. And then there was me, sort of cocky, freshest rep at university, sort of walked up to him afterwards and said, mate, 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 you don't want to be, t- you don't want, if you want people to follow Jesus, don't tell them about the cross. People don't want to follow, people don't want to hear about the cross. If you want people to follow Jesus, you've got to tell them that God's going to make their life better. Don't worry about, don't worry about the cross. He didn't say, Judas, I'm glad. He's a good friend of mine now. But that's what I was acting like. Despising Jesus' death. Thinking nothing of it. Thinking that it meant nothing. Thinking that it was not valuable. So if Mary is presented here as someone to aspire to be like, Judas is presented as a warning to any of us here who think nothing of Jesus' death. Mary treasures Jesus' death. Judas despises Jesus' death. The crowd Well how would you how would you fill in that blank? How were the crowd responding to Jesus' death? Well it looks pretty good, doesn't it? I mean look, verse verse thirteen, Hosanna, which means save or God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And that, that middle line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from Psalm 118. That was a psalm that the Jewish people sung every year at Passover. It was a psalm where they particularly looked back and remembered and gave thanks for what God had done in rescuing them from Egypt and giving them life after they were enslaved in the, in, in the land of Egypt. So they've got it, right? We can easily say the crowd treasures Jesus' death. They get it, that this is their king coming, riding into his city to rescue them. Except, you know, you know how the story goes. This same crowd... Many of them, in six short days' time, are going to be the same people who are crying, crucify him. So they're making a big song and dance about their king now. They're making all the right noises. But when the tide of opinion turns, when there is a cost to treasuring Jesus' death, they don't, they don't break like Mary. They break like Judas. That's, I guess that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Many, many of us who would call ourselves Christian, I, I, I take it we're not in, in immediate danger of being like Judas and despising Jesus' death. But the warning of the crowd is perhaps more pertinent to us. See, it costs the crowd nothing at this point to say, Hosanna! Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's easy to make a song and dance about the fact that we treasure, we value Jesus' death when there's no cost to us. But when there is a cost, that's when it becomes difficult. When we get pressure from um, other people in our families about the life decisions we're making because we treasure Jesus' death. 
Oh, that's when we need to pray that God would give us the grace to treasure his death. When we get that um, dubious look or that tone from the school teacher at the parents' evening who questions why it is we want to tell our children that they need Jesus to die for them. That is when pressure comes. That is when we need to pray for the grace to treasure Jesus' death and not despise it. Jesus' death is the only means by which we gain life. This passage encourages us. This passage warns us. There are ultimately two choices. You can treasure that death or you can despise it. And if it is the only means by which we gain life, eternal life, then that decision is of the utmost importance. What do you see when you see your saviour on the cross? Is it nothing to you or you who pass by? Or is, is it something to be treasured? above everything. Let me pray. Then I'm going to give us a few moments in silence of reflection. There'll be uh, something on the screen behind me. And then the band will come up and we'll sing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that the Caiaphas and the rulers and the people and the crowd ultimately tried to snuff out the light they could not the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it by sending you the lord of life to your death they hastened a death that would bring life to all those who would treasure it and so father we pray whether this is a reminder or whether this is for the first time that we would be men and women who treasure that death that brings life. Amen.